Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. privilege to be able to ask Carl to come and preach for us this morning to bring God's word to us. May we have ears to hear what the Lord would say to us through the word. Carl, would you come? Thank you very much. Please open your Bible to the book of Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. It's a real privilege to be with you once again here at Grace Bible Fellowship. Been looking forward to this and it's just a wonderful opportunity to come here every fall not only to enjoy the beautiful turning of the leaves in your area, but also to enjoy good fellowship with each one of you, dear brothers and sisters. Thank you so much for the warm hospitality of Pastor Tyler and Alyssa and their children, letting us enjoy fellowship with them in their home as well. Mark chapter 14. Today's story begins what we call the final passion week in the life of Jesus. Passion week actually began back in Mark chapter 11, but today the final countdown begins to the death, resurrection, and burial of our Lord Jesus. Today is an action story. There's a lot of movement in what we're going to be reading in these 11 verses. A lot of noise going on, but among all the noise, one lesson stands out very clearly. True devotion is beautiful. True devotion is beautiful, but it will always get you into trouble. As I read today's story from Mark chapter 14, watch that happen. True devotion is beautiful, but it will always get you into trouble. The devotion of two people in this story, in these verses, got them into trouble. On the one hand, people troubled a devoted Jesus, and on the other hand, people troubled a devoted woman. See if you can pick that up. Mark chapter 14, verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, 
what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Mark your sandwiches three stories together today. The priests troubled Jesus, and then the disciples troubled a woman, and then Judas troubled Jesus. True devotion will is beautiful, but it will always get you into trouble. First, watch how the devoted Jesus got into trouble. First, it was with the priests, then it was with Judas. The setting here on this in Mark chapter 14 is the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So we're on the 12th day of their month called Nisan, which is in March or April to us. One of the greatest national holidays was just about to begin. This week is the combination of the one-day celebration of Passover, followed right on by the seven-day celebration and commemoration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jews from across the Roman Empire would pour into Jerusalem, the 50,000 residents of Jerusalem would swell to 250,000. People came together to give thanks to God for remembrance of their first redemption at the first Passover, freedom from slavery in Egypt 1,500 years prior. They were preparing to sacrifice lambs that are going to be painting the blood of the lambs across their doorways, remembering God's protection of them centuries ago. Followed right on that is the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, in which they will purge from their lives everything that is displeasing to God through a ritual sweeping of their houses clean from every form of leaven and yeast. No raised loaves on their table that week. Everything was pita bread and tortillas. That was a noisy week. The people were making noise. The sheep, lambs were making noise. The Pharisees and the religious leaders were also making noise that week. You see, these men, just like their crafty father, the serpent, back in the Garden of Eden, this brood of snakes, the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, were looking for some clever way, some sly way to trap Jesus. From the very beginning of Mark's gospel, we see their plot beginning. They were always looking for a way, waiting for an opportunity to Jesus to catch Jesus. Now Jesus is in town. He's there at the feast. He had just swept out their temple and debated them in the public square. This is their opportunity to catch him and to ambush him. At the very end of John chapter 11, it says that these scribes, these chief priests, had put help want or uh, most wanted signs all around the town. If anybody finds Jesus, turn him in. So everybody was looking for him. They wanted someone to turn him in. But the plans of the priests backfired on them. They wanted, it says in verse 2, to do it secretly, not during the feast, lest the Romans come in. And if we arrest him during this week, a quarter of a million people will riot. The Romans will send in their troops. And our quiet little corner of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire will go into chaos. We will lose our control over these people. We will lose our control of our nation and over our religion. These chief priests were pure hypocrites. Let's kill him, but let's not make a big deal of it. Let's find a way to sin, but let's keep the peace at the same time. How can we sin and still be in control? Pure hypocrisy. 
the plan also backfired. Let's arrest Jesus quietly. Wait until the Passover is over. But in fact, he was arrested right at the beginning of their holiday. There was a tumult. The Romans did intervene. J.C. Ryle says here that they wanted to put an end to Christ's kingdom, but rather they established his kingdom. They wanted to put an end to Christ's teaching, rather they spread it. They wanted to put an end to Christ himself privately, rather he was crucified right on the main highway for everyone to see. Psalm 2 says the nations raged, the peoples plotted, but they plotted in vain. The Lord was up in heaven laughing. I have installed Jesus, my servant, my son, on my holy hill. So it was not according to their plan, but it was precisely according to the plan of Christ. Christ was completely in charge of his own death and his own passion week. But these priests, the priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him. These were bad guys. These were devils in the uniform of clergy. They were wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing. What was the sin of these priests? It was a mixture. But rising to the top of that mixed cesspool of evil was the scum of control. They wanted control. They wanted control of the people. They wanted control of God. They wanted control of the kingdom what the kingdom must look like. And the kingdom certainly does not look like that Jesus over there. They want to control of the social situation so Rome would not crack down on them. If Rome cracks down on us, we lose control. They were more fearful of the scourge of Rome than of the scourge of heaven. Control, fear, and bullying. All three of these seem to go together, don't they? <clears throat> control, fear, and bullying. They feared the people, they controlled the people, they bullied the people. And the priests' love for power, for advantage, for control clashed that day with a pure devotion of Jesus. From the very opening of Mark's gospel, from the very opening chapter, Jesus was devoted to ushering in his Father's kingdom. The, Father, the kingdom has come. Throughout his life, that theme builds. Uh, his father's kingdom, devotion to it, and devotion to his father, then clashed with, here with the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus, as Jesus' kingdom expanded, so did the trouble that it brought upon him, the devoted king. True devotion is beautiful, but it will always get you into trouble. We saw this in our own church with an 18-year-old young man in our congregation. He went to play with one of his friends, and another student came into the room, and they were talking about things that mattered to them. And our friend, our young church, uh, young person, talked about his faith and his religion in his church. But as soon as our friend walked out, the other two guys started talking about each other and how foolish he was to believe such nonsense like the Bible. Our friend was persecuted. Why? because he is following directly in the footsteps of this Jesus, who is devoted to his Father, devoted to his Father's kingdom, and to got into trouble for it. Now this murderous plot here in chapter 14 is the perfect follow-up to chapter 13. You see, chapter 13, Jesus warns us about the end times, the second coming of Christ. And throughout this chapter, he's saying, I am coming back, but you will be persecuted first. Father will turn against child, child will turn against father. You will be persecuted for your faith. 
This is the perfect follow-up for that. As if Jesus was saying here in chapter 13, you will be persecuted, and then in chapter 14, I'm going first. This is what it looks like. They persecute me. In chapter 13, the Lord was telling us, watch out, be careful, watch out for those who will persecute you. Who was doing the watching out in chapter 14? It was the chief priests, watching out for a way to ambush the Savior. Notice who does, the, who does the persecution in these verses. Who is doing the persecution? Religion persecutes devotion. True devotion gets you into trouble with religion. The chief priests, these are Israel's pastors, were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus that they might kill him, it says here. I cannot document this, but I'm sure that it happened. I have no doubt that the Sunday before Adolf Hitler authorized the execution of some Christians for safeguarding Jews in World War II, he likely went to church. He likely sang some of the great German hymns that we sing. Maybe even a mighty fortress is our God. And if that's the pattern here, that the chief priests, that religion is the thing that persecutes devotion, as it has been for most of church history, then when persecution unleashes in our country, it will probably not come from powerful Washington, wealthy New York, or liberal San Francisco. It will likely come from people with a Bible in their hand who just sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound the Sunday before. Religion persecutes true devotion. The chief priests were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus that they might kill him. Persecuted. The, the priests troubled Jesus. But the priests weren't the only ones who were troubling Jesus that day. Other people were making noise about Jesus. The priest's prayers were seemingly answered and they found a Judas. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is Judas. This is one of the good guys. One of the twelve, a good friend of Jesus, personally chosen by the Lord, colleague of Peter, James, and John. This is the Judas who went out and preached the pure gospel. He cast out demons. He defended Jesus. Judas was so devoted to Christ and the gospel that when Jesus announced around the last table, one of you will betray me, none of them had a clue as to who he was talking about. None of them knew, hey, this is Judas. We've kind of known something about this guy all along. No, nobody had a clue. What do we learn from this? Do not ever be alarmed at how far a person may apparently progress in their faith and still turn away from the Lord. This Judas was far beyond our modern scandalous apostates today that we hear about. But he betrayed the Lord. Now these priests do something really interesting here. They do something here that we never hear them do before. And it's in verse 11. What do they do in verse 11 that we never hear them do before? And when they heard it, they were glad. Legalists never laugh, do they? They always scowl. They always look for someone to control. 
They laugh. These guys are happy. They're glad. Now they finally got in control again. And they're finally happy for the first time since we meet them in chapter 2 with their arms crossed and the big scowl on their face. Now they're finally laughing. Later on, they will hand Judas a fistful of coins. 30 silver coins. The price you would pay to redeem a slave in those days. Judas troubled Jesus. So in this three-part episode, this sandwich, that's our first point. Jesus, because of his devotion to his father's kingdom, gets into trouble. First from the priests and then from the betrayer. But Jesus was not the only person to get into trouble that day. Mark sandwiches these stories together, two about Jesus, and then in between we listen to another story about a woman. A woman who was troubled and mocked because of her devotion. Every day during Passover week, Jesus would leave Jerusalem and hike two miles uphill to the refuge home in Bethany. That evening, he and his disciples dined at the home of a friend named Simon, a former leper. And at some point during the evening meal, a glass breaks. And the scent of perfume fills the dining room. A woman is kneeling behind Jesus, rubbing ointment into his hair. The parallel account of the Gospel of John tells us that she didn't stop with his hair, but she rubbed lotion into his feet as well. She anointed Jesus. She perfumed Jesus. Those who have researched this tell us that this perfumed ointment came from the root of the spikenard plant that grows in northern India. It was so costly that it was not used on ordinary occasions. And this woman had a lot of it. It wasn't just a daily squirt that she would maybe use. I'm going to go squirt Jesus with my daily perfume. No, it was enough to douse his long hair and his feet. They say that this was often used as an heirloom an inheritance that she would receive and then pass on to her daughter. This was her inheritance, her financial security, and she had a lot of it. 300 pieces of silver worth, 10 times what Judas betrayed him with. A year's wages for a laborer who would be paid one silver coin per day. Maybe $40,000 in our day. This was not held in the normal jar with the other daily lotions and olive oils that they would use. It was in an alabaster cruise. Alabaster is a form of gypsum grown in our own country. It's a soft mineral, easily carved even by your fingernail, into an ornamental bottle, sealed at the top of the long neck so that the whole neck had to be broken to spill out the lotion. It was precious. It was costly. It was personal, and it was her expression of true love to her friend Jesus. I love how quiet in this part of the story true devotion is. It's nameless. Her name is not given. We know who this was. John's parallel account names her as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Jesus knew the family well, so did the gospel writer Mark. But here she is nameless, maybe for a reason. True devotion is nameless. Worship is not always snapping and posting images of itself. So far this story has been noisy. A quarter of a million people pouring into town. Noisy sheep 
Noisy priests. Noise between Judas and the priests. Noise at the supper table with people eating and talking. How refreshing is the quietness of true devotion. This woman says nothing. She's nameless. Until the disciples get in the way of this, converse, of this event and start making noise again around the table. Verse 4. Then there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? Parallel accounts in the other Gospels tell us who these scolders were. They were the disciples themselves. Why was this ointment wasted like that? By the time Jesus takes his next bath, all this expensive perfume will be washed into the drain and into the sewers of Bethany. What a waste. And what about the poor? We've been walking around with Jesus for three years and he's always telling us to take care of the poor. We're always reaching our bags into the petty cash bag and giving out money at his request to the poor. And here's $40,000 that could have been given. Passover, at least by this time, was also an almsgiving occasion. This is the week to give out money. And here's a year's wages. 300 silver coins could have gone so long, so far, to help the needy people. These disciples were fault finders. I find them in my own heart. They're not the murderous priests. They're not the betraying Judases. They're the ones across the dinner table chewing on a hunk of bread and murmuring. What a waste. Why wasn't this given to the poor? Friends, grumblers like us often have a little bit of priest in us, don't we? You see, the priests wanted to control what kind of Messiah Jesus should look like. But fault-finding, grumbling disciples wanted to control what discipleship and pure devotion should look like. And it can't look like wasting. Friend, your pure devotion is beautiful, but it will get you into trouble. People today can be devoted to sports, to politics, to the stock market, and you will be adored. But you tell people that you are devoted to God, the Bible, and your church, and they think that you will have gone completely mad. You're extreme. You're a fanatic. How about some moderation? How about balance? What a waste. Why this waste? Well, that was Mary's very concern. That's your very concern, isn't it? Waste. I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and say, yeah, it was wasted. That's your concern, isn't it? Wasting your time, your talents, your money, your gifts. That's your very concern. I don't want to waste anything. That was Mary's concern. When we think about all the things that God has given to us, we say with the psalmist, what can I render to God for all that he has given to me? We start looking around for things to give. Why this waste? But your friends will urge balance on you. Don't waste your good retirement years. You retire at 65, you still have another good 25 or 30 years left on earth. Make the most of it. What on earth are you doing Spending hours teaching Sunday school, praying more, helping immigrants, widows, serving your church, your elderly parents, helping hurricane victims. For goodness sake, get out there and have some fun. Don't waste those years. That's your very concern, is I don't want to waste those good years. 
I can hear the disciples saying, don't waste that money. Let's use the money. Why don't we invest it? Make it outlive her. Why don't we send missionaries with that money? We are all going to be sent out in a few weeks to the ends of the earth, we 12 missionaries. How about we take that money and go build a Bible college in Ephesus for pastor training? We all know that we're going to be beheaded in a few years. We're all going to be martyrs. How about investing in a life insurance policy so that our wives can have something when it's curtains for us? They scolded her. Who did they scold? They scolded her. Why didn't they scold him? He was just sitting there enjoying it all. They were a bunch of cowards. They scolded her. Now at this point, our story has been building. It comes to its height. The setting is Bethany. The backdrop is this dinner table. The plot builds as this woman enters the room and starts anointing the Lord. Tension further builds as the disciples complain. Now all eyes are on Jesus. What is he going to do? This man who loves the poor, what is he going to say to her? What's he going to do? Let's watch Jesus. Let's watch Jesus scoop up the dripping nard, funnel it back into that flask, send the bottle to the market to be sold, and chase this reckless woman out of the room. The disciples can't wait for Jesus to agree with them. What's going to happen next? Leave her alone. Don't touch this girl. Leave her alone. Jesus had just departed from the temple, having praised a nameless woman who gave all she had, two small copper coins, the widow. Now another nameless woman gives her all. Jesus praises her devotion as well. Leave her alone. Let her carry on. Let her carry on as she rubs oil into his scalp and then moves on to his feet, rubbing that aromatic cream into his ankles, heels, toes. And then she bows down and wipes off his feet with her hair. Leave her alone. This is what true devotion looks like. But Lord, says Bartholomew, maybe, this is a little bit sensual. Seems a little bit seductive even. You're the elder of our little church. Are you sure this is being blameless and above reproach? In fact, you seem to be enjoying it. He was. Leave her alone. Now it seems that when the gospel writers wrote this account, they must have had Psalm 41 open before them as they recounted this story. In Psalm 41, we see the priests. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? In Psalm 41, we find Judas. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. In Psalm 41, we see this woman. Blessed are those who have regard for the poor. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. In Psalm 41, we see Jesus. The Lord sustains them on their sick bed, his burial bed, and restores them from their bed of illness, his resurrection. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. So having just scolded the scolders, Jesus now in these next few verses, verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, 
He gives them a brief sermon and he shows them and he shows us what true devotion looks like in her or in us. First, it is beautiful. She has done a beautiful thing to me, verse 6. She poured her secure future on Jesus, someone said. Your devotion, dear friend, is also a beautiful thing to Jesus. Your devotion will look different than this woman's devotion. But whatever form it takes, Jesus calls it beautiful. Second thing Jesus says about true devotion is that it is timely. Verse 7, you do not always have me with you. You were concerned about the poor and the fact that she's not giving it to the poor. She has given it to the poor. I am poor. You are poor as well. She is giving it to the poor. Jesus here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 15, where it says, Be open-handed with the poor that are all around you. She is simply prioritizing this poor man, Jesus, while he is still around. True devotion is timely. Third true devotion, he talks then about the extent of true devotion. In verse 8, where he says, She has done what she could. She did what she could. This woman has not done everything. She has not gone out on missionary trips like you disciples. She has not cast out demons like you twelve have. Maybe she didn't give as much money as Zacchaeus might have, but she did what she could. The same is true for our devotion. We cannot do everything. We do what we can and we are content with that. Maybe you have not become the superstar grandfather or the superstar at work or the superstar mom or dad or the superstar on the baseball team, but you have done what you could. Maybe you're not the superstar Sunday school teacher, but you do what you can, and God is pleased with that. The story that we are reading this morning is very personal to me. It was one of the last stories that I read before I finally left for Africa a day or two before I departed. After 20 years serving there, I realized that I, have not done every, I had not done everything that I had wanted to do. I had not planted churches in every Mozambican village. I had not helped every poor person. I had not accomplished other things that I had wanted to do, but I read these words. She did what she could. And I took out a little square piece of paper and wrote down these words. She did what she could. I got a thumbtack on that paper, nailed it on or stuck it onto my office bulletin board, went and packed my suitcase, got on the plane and left. We do what we can, not everything. And the same is with you. The author, pastor, and biblical counselor, J. Adams, had these very words inscribed on his headstone before his death. He did what he could. That's the extent. Fourth, in his little sermon, Jesus talks about the deeper significance of devotion in verse 8. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She didn't just perfume him. She prepared him. In those days, as you know, it was common at burials for the dead body to be brought enormous amounts of ointment and smeared all over them in preparation for the burial. And on the following Sunday morning, a handful of other Marys went to Jesus' tomb with baskets full of ointment ready to anoint his body. They never got to douse him. His resurrection beat them to it. This Mary guaranteed that he would get his anointing. She has prepared me for my burial. Finally, Jesus assures her that true devotion guarantees her a good memory. A good memory. In verse 9, this woman 
poured out her inheritance on Jesus. Her inheritance is gone. Her security, her financial security is gone. Jesus says, no, it's not gone. It's just beginning. The Lord says that wherever people read the Bible, this woman's devotion will be told. We're including her story in the Bible, he says. And by the way, my disciples, guess who it is who's going to be going out to take the story of this great woman and retell it in every village where you go? It's you guys. You grumbling apostles are to be the ones who are taking it out and you're going to tell her story. Maybe in payment for your scowling, grumbling, moaning. You get to preach her. You've got to preach her wherever you go. By the way, what are they going to preach about? Not what she said, but what she did will be told about her. Friend, you know as well as I do that you will be remembered more by what you do than what you say. So let's get doing, right? True devotion, far from being wasted and washed down the drain, will spread. What is it in this story about Jesus' death and money in these three short episodes? Everyone in this story was concerned about his death and their money. Jesus, or the priest gave money for his death. Jesus took money for his death. Mary forgot about her money for his death. So let's bring this to a close and tie a few things together. The Gospel of Mark forces on us three questions. Just as you read the Gospel of Mark. First, who is Jesus? Second, what did he do? Third, what does it mean to follow him? And this story opens up and answers these three questions. Who is Jesus? He is the only one on earth worth emptying it all for. If you're cheering for the Philadelphia Phillies, let's cheer them on. But let's cheer and give everything, everything to Jesus. Second, he's the one in complete control. You know what he said in this? He said, when the story of this woman goes out to the nations, that implies that this, there will be a gospel going out to the nations. My death is not the end of it. You all will go out and spread the gospel and her story around the nations. That tells us that Jesus was completely in charge of his own death. There will be a gospel to preach. The second question, what did Jesus do? That's answered all over the Gospel of Mark, and it comes to a height here. Jesus brought a kingdom that caused division. Jesus, Christ's kingdom, forces a decision upon us. It turns a person into a Mary to adore him or to a Judas to betray him. Friends, maybe you've come to church this morning and you've been sitting on the fence far too long. It's time for you to get off because Christ brought a kingdom that causes division, forces a decision upon us. Christ did not come into the world to be your therapist. He came to be your rescuer. Make your choice. You've been wavering too long. If you are a priest or a Judas, then just recognize it and get on with your work. If you're a grumpy disciple, maybe it's time to get off the fence and look a little bit more like Mary. Christ brought a kingdom that brought division and demands a decision. Third, what does it mean to follow him? We see this very clearly. It means two things. Number one, watch in your heart for the priest, the betrayer, or the grumbling disciple. The priest, the, 
that is the bullying, fearful controller. Watch for that in your heart. Watch for the ashamed betrayer in your heart. Watch also for the grumbling fault finder who is more concerned about service than you are about the Savior. Watch for the priest, the Judas, and the grumbler in, in your heart. Secondly, join Mary. Let's join Mary. This is true devotion. True devotion, just to bring everything together, is quiet and nameless. True devotion does not worry about you uh, or the opinions of others. She just went in, apparently no knock, excuse me, sir, can I anoint you? She just opened that bottle and she went for it. It's not, true devotion does not worry about the opinion of others. True devotion is all out. True devotion is cross-centered. She didn't just do this because she was a, Jesus was a nice guy. She did it because of the cross was coming. She prepared him for burial. Finally, true devotion does not focus on your act of devotion. Be careful with this. Don't leave this story and go home and start looking around. What can I give? Where's my nard? I can outdo Mary. I have more than $40,000. I can give to her. Oh, be careful. Devotion doesn't focus on the gift. It doesn't focus on you. If Mary did it, I can do it. No, you've ruined the whole thing. Don't look at the gift. And don't look at Mary. Look at Jesus. And you will know what devotion will look like. Your sacrifice might be a jug full of ointment or it might be two copper coins. Probably it looks like simple faithfulness, contentment, joy, quiet industry, encouraging others, willing service, helping a person in need. But dear friend, be careful. Be very careful. Why? Because true devotion is beautiful, but it will always get you into trouble. Mary approached Jesus at a table. That's what you do monthly in communion. You come to the table with the emblems on your communion Sunday as you break bread and as you take the cup. Communion is a great time to examine yourself, to do a little soul searching, to get off the fence if you need to. Why was Mary so reckless in her devotion? I wonder if she was just copying Jesus. Didn't Jesus have a reckless love for us? Now, maybe you precisionists don't like the word reckless. No, God is precise. Grace is well measured, apportioned. I know. I get you. But those of you who have come broken, or maybe someone has broken you, you want God to show reckless love for you. Here I am. Pour it out on me. You're happy to hear of Christ's seemingly reckless love lavished on you. He loved you. Jesus, as one person has said, was broken. He was spilled out and he was poured out for you. So come to Christ this morning in his plentiful love. But just remember, true devotion, just like Mary's and just like his, is beautiful, but it will always get you into trouble. Let's pray. Lord, we see this woman in her devotion, Lord, and we see how careless we are. Lord, how empty our devotion looks in comparison to hers. But Lord, we don't look to the gift. We don't look at her. We look at Jesus Christ. 
we thank you. Thank you that you are worthy of giving all to. And Lord, we give in devotion in many, many small ways. And we commit ourselves once again to that today. Small words of encouragement, small tokens of help. And we thank you that you are worth being devoted to. We give ourselves to you today, giving you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.